Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. It is the lull between the end of the regular season and the bowl games. We have the Heisman ceremony this weekend. Bruce, you were just in New York for all of the uh, to network and and schmooze with all the people in town for the National Football Foundation dinner. Any uh, any good nuggets? Any juice for us? A little bit. Um, there's the best stuff I can't really share. The best stories, but. Um, I can say I never realized there were this many hookers that frequented. Jeez, where did that come from? I know it's just like it, it frequented this 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 event. It's basically the College Football Hall of Fame uh, induction week or ceremony. It was obviously a, a very stuffy, highfalutin hotel, and there's a couple bars in there, and you're looking around, and you're like, I "Wonder if that's that guy's wife? I wonder if that's that guy?" And then you start to realize as the night wears on. Um, you know, there's a very there's a lot of outgoing women there, <laughs> and this, that it just uh, it just creates kind of a unique dynamic. That's all I'll say. I'll leave that, it. That is not what I was expecting in the least bit to hear. Um, <laughs> maybe some coaching scuttlebutt or something like that. But uh, good to know. Uh, well, you know what? I will I will tell you. There's one. I, you know, this story is kind of interesting. It's an inside baseball story, but we do a podcast, so so be it. Um, on Monday night, I'd gone out to dinner with some Fox people and got to the bar, I want to say around midnight. And I hadn't been online that much. Before, you know, maybe I checked it out, you know, here or there. But um, when you walked in, a bunch of people were talking about how uh, there had been a report that Baylor was about, it sounded like they were going to hire uh, Blake Anderson from Arkansas State. And so. It was interesting in that, you know, that had been advanced quite a bit. I had not, I'd heard Blake Anderson was in the mix, but just not that they had settled on him. And I guess the report was from a website was that he had been, they'd uh, been in negotiations with Baylor. What was ironic was about four, about, you know, 10 feet away from me, not even maybe five feet away from me was Arkansas state's president and their AD. And not far from them were, uh, Blake Anderson's two agents and nobody seemed like they, and those, nobody there seemed like they thought that was going to happen or they were all surprised by the news. And so you like have this feeling where it's kind of ground zero for what should be the, that. And obviously that didn't turn out to be the case, but, um, it was a little bit surreal for all those people to be kind of interacting and people like going up to the Arkansas state guys and them just being kind of like shrugging their shoulders, like, Oh, we don't think that's what's happening or whatever. So it was, uh, Get some crazy stuff this time of year, still. Well, there's been some, frankly, wrong reporting on this, some some incorrect reporting. And I saw somebody. You were the first one to mention Willie Taggart was in the mix at Oregon, and somebody literally said, "Like I'm laughing." My sources are laughing out loud at that. Well, guess what? Just before we came on, Oregon introduced Willie Taggart at a press conference. Um, yeah, I didn't think that like that part. I didn't think was cool. You want know, to take a shot at me as a reporter? That's one thing. But I was like. I don't know why they, you know, mocking Willie Taggart. And obviously those sources, you know, they could have been people who work in the industry, but I'll tell you what, they were not as influential as the people that I heard were backing Willie Taggart. And those are some heavyweight dudes. And I think that helped, you know, get, get him a chance at Oregon to meet and impress people. And obviously he did or else they wouldn't have hired him. So, um, yeah, he was a serious candidate at, at that point. And obviously, um, he landed the job, which is, it's a, it's going to be an interesting ride for him because, I do think Oregon is a much tougher job now than it was when Chip Kelly got the job because you have 
Washington with Chris Peterson, they're in the playoff now. Washington is much stronger now than it's been in a very long time. Stanford back then, Stanford was just getting settled in. Now Stanford is a real established, you know, powerhouse and you know, in the same part of the country, Washington State, which had been which had been so abysmal for a while, you know, now they win eight, eight or nine games, and they're a threat to beat anybody with Leach there. So, there's a lot of factors there that that make this a very very challenging job for uh, for Willie Taggart to step into. We've got an email question about him later when we get to the mailbag. Um, I wanted to ask you though. Okay, so I don't know if you were still in New York, but. Another event they have there this week is the IMG Forum, and a bunch of commissioners and other big wigs are up on a panel, and Mark Emmert was up there, and they asked him about the playoff. And he said if it were up to him, you know, his preference would be to see an 18 playoff with five conference champions so that the five conference champions could get in automatically. This rubbed me the wrong way for a couple of reasons. One as Jim Delaney would later point out on the same forum, Mark Emmert, the president of the NCAA, doesn't have a vote. Right. It's, it's not. Up, it's actually not up to him. So. It's not up to him. And so he's basically just any other person weighing in on it. But the headline will go out there, NCAA president wants 18 playoff, and everybody thinks there's some sort of momentum to that. But also, his he's the president of the NCAA. He represents all of the schools, not just the power conferences. And, yeah, I get it. You know, realistically, if that day happens, the Power Five will get their automatic bids. But kind of a slap in the face to the Sun Belt and the MAC and all the other conferences that are part of NCAA Division One. Yeah, and I think some of this – I don't – actually, I don't know if I fault Mark Emmer for just speaking his mind in a, on a panel setting of, you know, a lot of times – and, again, this is a, a media thing where – Somebody can ask a question at a press conference or some kind of setting and people are like, oh, it's almost like you have an agenda if you answer the question or how you do. I think realistically, and I've been critical of Mark Emmer plenty, but I, I do feel like you know he's at the point where he, don't, he won't get the benefit of the doubt on anything. Um, and so you know, he gave an opinion and I think it's, you know, it's not his fault that a lot of people you know, don't understand how college football works, that the NCAA – is not like it is with the basketball tournament or the other sports where they where they really have control. They don't in this in this side of it, which is ironic because it's obviously the the biggest deal of all of them. And then my only other point on that would be what one of his big um, talking points this year has been time demands. We've got to do a better job about time demands on athletes. And then he just basically proposed a whole extra round of games. So anyway, like you said, they asked him a question. He gave his opinion. Um, the other story I wanted to bring up before we get to the mailbag, did you see where a group of Notre Dame alums took out an ad in the paper? I did. I, I saw a reference to the story. I did not click into it. I just kind of left it where it is. Um, I don't know. I just kind of shrug my shoulders. Whenever I hear one of these things about, you know, a group taking on, you know, whether they put out an ad or fly a banner over a, over a game. The one thing I will say is they have accomplished what they probably were hoping they were to accomplish, which, you know, guys like us are now talking about it. I'm sure there's other, you know, little discussions, even if you're defending, which I think we're probably both going to be doing about Jack Swarbrick, it kind of creates like a, a referendum on Jack Swarbrick, which, you know, it pushes it out into the, into the, not into the mainstream, but push it out into the news cycle a little bit, right? Everybody's upset there. Four and eight is not acceptable at Notre Dame. You could email Jack Swarbrick. You could email the president saying to fire Jack Swarbrick. You could call into a radio show. But you take out an ad in the paper, guess what? Recruits are visiting this weekend. Big recruiting weekend. Um, they're going to see that. And the ad, by the way, 
just basically lists bullet point by bullet point everything wrong with... It's more about Brian Kelly. I mean, it's nothing Jack Swarbrick did. They're just mad at him because he won't fire Brian Kelly. 4-8 and eight in 2016, 0-10 versus top 12 over the last four seasons. Da-da-da-da. Then they bring up the academic cheating, which, by the way, I feel like while people there were down on Brian Kelly because of the season, that seemed to ratchet it up a notch. Um, and then my favorite part, but Jack says, quote, it's harder to win now than in 1988. And apparently the rebuttal of that is to put up Notre Dame and Stanford side by side in their record 2010 to 2016, as if that's just the ultimate proof of if Stanford can win at this high level, then certainly Notre Dame could. Uh, but it is hard. But look, what he's saying is very true. It is much harder for Notre Dame to win now than it did whatever that was. It's almost 30 years but ago. But there's a section of the fans. I don't think it's all of the fans, but there's a section of the fans, including these who are taking out ads in the newspaper, that don't that won't accept that. They should be competing for the national championship every single year. Because, look, we're having – they're taking out ads in the paper, and literally a year ago this time, Notre Dame was 10-2 and in preparing for the festival. Which I think is, you know, if you can be competitive every couple of years and be a top 10 team, I think that's not bad. And I think that, yeah, you know, look, not making a bowl game, I think, you know, that's Notre Dame shouldn't be in that point. But sometimes things happen and sometimes things, you know, spiral out that way. But, again, getting back to this guy's point or whatever, Notre Dame had a huge advantage on the rest of college football, you know, 30 years ago. When branding mattered most and they were on national TV and had that unique deal with Notre Dame that came shortly thereafter. With NBC. Yeah, the visibility was much different. Well, now when Notre Dame is ranked 23rd in the country, they really aren't any different than, let's say, a Michigan State if they are or a Boise State or or even, you know, I would say even Boise State or a school like, like uh, UCLA because – Pretty much every game is on TV if you want to watch it, you know, and a lot of those kids who grew up remembering, you know, when Notre Dame was, you know, the glory years of Notre Dame or national titles. No, no recruit remembers Lou Holtz as a as a coach at Notre Dame. None of them do. I mean, when you and I were growing up, um, and I know you're slightly older than me, but even when I was growing up, you know, there was one, maybe two games on at the same time of college football on a Saturday. And oftentimes Notre Dame was one of them. You know, they were. The program in college football. Uh, yes, Ohio State, Michigan, all of that. But, like, there was something about Notre Dame where you just saw them more often. They were talked about more often, etc. Everybody's on national television every week now, whether it's the Pac-12 network or FS1 or whoever. And, um, and when they're good, they still have that brand power. Don't get me wrong. There was a list this week of the most watched games of the regular season. And Notre Dame, Texas was number three. And when I, think, they, I think that's a little bit of that. Was, that was part of that was also due to having all Sunday by itself. Sure, but if it were two lesser known programs, I think even if they were two top twenty five teams, but they were um, it was Michigan State against Wisconsin, um, it wouldn't be the third most watched game of the whole season. It's because it's Notre Dame and Texas, so they do have that brand power. Part of but. It. They don't have that advantage, I don't think. But here's the, here's the other point. I guess we're going deep into Notre Dame more than we thought, but or at least more than I thought. So let's go back to what, what it was when it was 1988 when they won that national title. You know what? Those kids weren't that far removed from the last national title because it was only a, a decade before when they won one, and they had actually won another one before that like four years later. This is by far the biggest drought Notre Dame's ever had when it had won a national title. 
So we're talking about basically 30 years. So no, you know, the reality is most, most people in the mix, you know, don't have a frame of reference for that. The reason I'm defending Swarbrick in particular, I mean, it's incredibly short-sighted if you're going to blame this on him. Now, I get it. Football is king at Notre Dame and everything else is secondary. Jack Swarbrick is the guy that got them into the ACC, which was a game-changing move, maybe less so for football than for all their other sports. Their basketball team under Mike Bray is thriving since they got into the ACC. Back-to-back Elite Eights. Facilities got upgraded. I mean, there are so many good things he's done. And I will tell you, just within the industry, he's one of the most respected 80s in the country. So you want to fire Jack Swarbrick? Terrific. I wouldn't take out a newspaper ad the weekend that there's going to be recruits in town. And I just I just think this is all misplaced. If Brian Kelly has another bad season next year, he'll be gone. You'll, you'll move on to the next guy who's going to supposedly return him to glory. The only other thing I would say is I get a lot of emails or tweets you know, what are they thinking? How that? Why are they sticking with him? How have they not fired him? Private school, so we're not privy to his contract. Do these, I don't think anybody knows, you know, I assume there's a pretty substantial buyout. And this is a school that just literally in the last couple of years finally stopped paying Charlie Weiss to not coach there. He made, I want to say, $15 million in buyouts from a ridiculous deal they got him into. I don't I know how much it costs to fire Brian Kelly, but I bet it's a lot. I would suspect it would be much more than that if they were going to try to get rid of Brian Kelly. You uh, think no. you think his buyout is higher than $15 million? I would think it would cost them more to move on from him. Yes. Um, well, and I, beyond that, now look, in fairness, Brian Kelly is way more accomplished than Charlie Weiss. Um, you know, Charlie Weiss's best game at Notre Dame in five years was a loss to USC in the Bush push game. So why does this never come up? Why in all the, you know, now they want to fire Jack Swarbrick because he won't fire Brian Kelly. This seems pretty significant deal that it would cost more than $15 million to buy him out. Well, I think, you know, again, like you said, it's, it's private school. I think that we're talking about a guy who had, you know, has a lot more credibility as a coach. You know, I know some, some fans don't like him and don't like his style, but he almost had them in a playoff last year, and that was a team with a ton of injuries. You know, you can say say whatever you want about Brian Kelly. He's not a bad coach. I mean, I think he's proven that repeatedly. Um, but he is definitely has the you know he can be a guy who can who can who can tick people off. He doesn't handle things always the best at press conferences. He gets red faced a lot on the sidelines, and that's certainly not a not a great look. Um, but you know, when you look at Notre Dame, I think Notre Dame is one of those schools where it's one of those jobs where you couldn't see a lot of other guys and say, oh, yeah, I could see, you know, and this is not a knock on him because I think he's a terrific coach. But I could not see Jimbo Fisher as the head coach at Notre Dame, even if he wanted to be there. Right. So at the end of the day, I, I think the reason some fans might be frustrated with Jack Swarbrick is because he looks at it the way he looks at it realistically. He doesn't look at things through the prism of a diehard Notre Dame fan who's been going to games for 30 years and remembers the good old days. I mean, first of all, he would know how much it costs. We don't um, to make a coaching change. But he also knows that they haven't been this good in general in a long time. This was a bad year. Sometimes guys have bad years. If he goes 4-8 and again next year, you got to make the change. But uh, I know a lot – people are very down on him. We'll see if maybe the – as this season gets in the rearview mirror and as you get into next season, if maybe people will be um, – get back on the bus, if you will. But – I understand 
uh, people are frustrated. I don't think that's the way to go about it. We have a lot of emails to get to. What do you say we break open the mailbag? Sounds good. We'll get back to the podcast in a minute, but first, a word from our two sponsors this week. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans proudly supports the Audible. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. Fast, powerful, and completely online, Rocket Mortgage has taken all of the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. Hate searching through stacks of old files and paperwork? With Rocket Mortgage, you can easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. Even better, with Rocket Mortgage, you can do all of this on your phone or tablet. It's a quick online process that you can manage from the convenience of your couch. So, if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash audible. And the Audible is also brought to you by Books. Looking for something nice to celebrate a landmark moment or show appreciation for an everyday gesture? Send a book. A book is a bouquet, simplified. Let me explain further. The Books company starts with farm fresh flowers. These babies are chemical free, sourced from eco-friendly, sustainable farms. The flowers arrive days after they're cut, compared to nearly three weeks like you're going to get somewhere else. Plus, prices start at a mere 40 bucks, and there are no hidden fees or unnecessary upsells. Register with your email for free weekday delivery. Right now, listeners can save $15 off. Just go to books.com slash audible. That's B-O-U-Q-S dot com slash audible. And I can also tell you guys, I recently used the books to get a bouquet for my wife, and she remarked that they were much nicer than the flowers I used to get her. That's a good sign for books, a bad sign for my choices in the past. Where's Rob Stone at? It's the mailbag from a computer. So not literally a bag, but just mail. All right. Like I said, we're going to start out with a couple of these coaching hires. Ian McFarlane, Kirkland, Washington, Bruce and Stewart. Happy holidays, guys. I'm a Washington fan, so I'm absolutely loving it. But is Oregon now regretting firing Mark Helfrich? They thought they had Tom Herman. Then Matt Rule went off the board. Willie Taggart is now the guy. Don't get me wrong, I love Willie, but he's a great offensive mind who's shown no capacity to coach defense and lacks big game experience. Isn't that just a watered-down Mark Helfrich? Well, I think what Willie represents is a change from getting out from under the Oregon tree as it is. Uh, you know, he's a as he said in his press conference earlier today, uh, you know, and we've talked about this quite a bit at some other points. I mean, he's basically the third Harbaugh brother. And he has done it with different styles of offenses. And I think the biggest thing you'll see with him, and this isn't a knock on, on Mark Helfrich at all, but I think you'll see, you know, he relates to players very, very well. And I think that uh, that maybe the, the leadership at Oregon just felt like, you know what, we just need some new, new energy in this building and a new way of doing things. Because it's not, it's not even just Mark Helfrich. You know, and remember, before Mark Helfrich was fired, he talked about not, you know, he wasn't, you know, didn't expect to make any changes to his staff. And a lot of those guys are really good coaches, but they've been there for, you know, some of them for like 30 years. And I think that maybe this wasn't just a change from the head coach. It was just, it was a, it was a wholesale change they were making. 
So we'll see. I mean, Willie, Willie's got his hands full here. And it's interesting because he left behind. You know, Clinton, Quentin Flowers is one of the best quarterbacks in the country, and I suspect he'll be back for next year. Like, so Taggart was leaving behind a team that probably has a chance to be a top 20 team next year. It wasn't like he had to jump because this was his window. But, uh, you know, he had coached in the Pac-12 at Stanford under Jim Harbaugh and, and was very intrigued by this. And he really went for it and obviously got it. So we'll see. I mean, offensively, they, they have some some stuff to work with. Defensively, um, they got they got a lot of work to do because they haven't been good on defense in quite some time. Well, as the president of Oregon reminded everybody in the opening press conference when he took, I think, a, a little bit of a shot either at Mark Alfred or Brady Oak or both, when he said his only advice to Willie Taggart was to go out and hire a good defensive coordinator. Um, I think he's a good hire. Um, I like the fact that he has coached in the Pac-12 with Harbaugh at Stanford. and But it is going to be a substantial change. Uh, it's not going to be the Chip Kelly Oregon system that you've come to know and love, and which frankly didn't do so well this year or the last couple of years. So it's going to be a drastic change, but I think he's a good coach. I think he showed it. I mean, he couldn't have started off much worse at USF the first game of his first year, they lost by 20 or 30 points to McNeese State, and people wondered, what have we gotten ourselves into here? But they got uh, better and better each year, 10-2 and two this year. So I'm interested to see what he can do. I, in fact, I, it'll be interesting to see how quickly he gets it turned around. I mean, I think it might follow a similar trajectory. Rough first couple years, gradual improvement, and then a breakthrough. Uh, yeah, and I, look, as you alluded to, I mean, he had... He was on the brink of getting fired last year. He was one in three. And, you know, I think there were people within the USF athletic department who were looking to, to, to fire him. And he saved himself and won seven, I think, of the last nine. Obviously, they went 10 and two. Uh, so that I could, you know, if, if it's rocky early on, which it could be, I think, you know, he's of the character, especially how he handled his first two jobs, that he'll, he'll kind of plow through it. And I think that does bode well for them. All right, Stu, my turn for a question. Uh, Dear Stuart and Bruce, after three years of the playoff selection process, how would you set up your non-conference schedule going forward? Writes Jeffrey Trailer, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Can I just say that that is the perfect podcast question? If you guys, short and to the point, we yet again, as I was going through this week's, had a lot of essays that I couldn't possibly read on the air not only is that short and to the point, but it's a great question. It's uh, one that we should should launch us off to a nice discussion here. If I was making a non-conference schedule, um, it would be probably Oklahoma's was a little too ambitious this year, and it got them. And then Washington's wasn't not wasn't ambitious enough, so it'd be somewhere in between. You know, Stu, I had a conversation with Gary Patterson years ago, and I think it was in his Mountain West days, and he talked about the ideal schedule for him was. And I kind of paraphrasing these one punch up game, one game, which means you're playing somebody who may be above your weight class, but it's a challenging game where you have a chance to win. But, you know, you may be an underdog. Uh, One game where and this was a four game kind of non-conference, not three. One game where you probably like your chances to win, but it's a respected opponent in like a power five kind of deal. And then two opponents that you should win. That should be games for get your confidence up, you know, get some other guys some playing time. And I think that's the way it is. And I think Oklahoma got got burned to some degree because, you know, this was a really good year for Houston. But as I pointed out to some people online, Houston's had double digit win seasons like half the time in the last decade. 
So to think that they're not going to be pretty good and pretty dangerous, I think would would have been a stretch to begin with. And let's give some credit to both Joe Castiglione, the AD, and Bob Stoops. This has been their philosophy since he's been there. You know, they they do not shy away from scheduling well out of conference, and most of the time it works out for them. Sometimes it doesn't. I would do uh, so on a three game schedule. I would do what Ohio State did this year. One high-profile home-and-home or neutral site game. And I say that there's only so many programs that can get Oklahoma to do a home-and-home with them, right? So if you're that caliber program that can get that, great. If not, it may have to be somebody who is a top 25-type program but maybe doesn't have an 80,000-seat stadium. But the point is you need one game that you feel like is going to be your top 25 opponent for a major conference that's going to be your, your signature win. For the committee, then you're going to want one that is either a a lower level Power Five or a good mid major game. Like you said, if you're a playoff contender, you should win that game, but it's still respectable. And then for your third one, you can play whoever you want, uh, preferably not FCS, but you know somebody that will come to your stadium and you can beat the crap out of them. Four games, um, I would think you would mostly the same approach, but I would think that second one would definitely want to be a power five, you know, I think only the SEC schools can get away with one big one and three nobodies. Yeah. And when you say get away with, I mean, again, your margin for error slims down, but you know, to this point, no SEC team has been penalized in the BCS or the playoff for not playing a strong enough non-conference schedule. Oh, by the way, a good example of the schedule I'm talking about is Ohio State's this year, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Tulsa from the AAC, who is a nine-win team this year is generally decent. And Bowling Green, actually Bowling Green is, was the MAC champion last year. This year they weren't as good. Bruce and Stewart, a question and a request. With the success Matt Rule has had at Temple the last two years, couldn't he get a job with better circumstances than Baylor? Also, if I'm lucky enough to get this question on the air, is there any way that Bruce can say F dash 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 in the answer? Jason Garlewski, Columbia, South Carolina. First of all, before we answer this question, I think the next time one of us is in, in the state of South Carolina, we need to go have dinner or beers with Jason <laughs> Gorlewski. Yeah, I agree. He's keeping this podcast afloat. I agree. I also did not say the word that he wrote in there because if you if it comes up spontaneously, okay, but we do have children that listen to this podcast. I've been told on a couple occasions now. We do? We have people who drive to work and listen to it or drive. they're pick, dropping their kid off at school and the kid's in the car and suddenly you you know, you go blue on them and, uh, it, uh, you know, we have to be careful about that. You're correct. I apologize to anyone on that. That's my fault. Um, okay. So the question is with the success Matt rule had at temple the last year, couldn't he get a job with better circumstances than Baylor? I think a lot of people agree. He's a great coach and they're very puzzled why he chose the Baylor job given the mess there. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, I think he had a real shot at getting Oregon. you know, I'm not sure what would have been the next step for him. He's a guy and I wrote this a week ago. I could see, you know, get, you know, fitting in almost anywhere. I think when you, when you're around him and you meet him, and you get to know him, you feel like this is a genuine guy. You know, now his teams play really good defense. They were one of the top five in the country in defense, and they're physical and they're going to run the football. And that should fit in just about anywhere. I can see why he wanted, why Baylor wanted him. Now, 
Baylor's going to be a tough job. I think what he, you know, from what I've heard on this deal, I think it's seven, it's a seven year deal. They're committed to him for a long term because they know there are going to be some serious struggles in the next couple of years because of dealing with the fallout from that scandal. Um, but again, this comes back to what were the jobs out there that people thought, okay, um, you know, once Texas and LSU are filled, what were the, what were the other, you know, are there great jobs out there? Jeff Brom, I think, is a really good coach. I think it was a home run hire for Purdue. I, sometimes this, it doesn't work out. The timing isn't great. Now, could he have waited? Maybe P.J. Fleck's going to wait another year, and maybe P.J. Fleck gets rewarded with a much better job than you know Purdue or something or Cincinnati. But uh, you know, I, I just uh, you know, it's not like you know he's going to end up with USC or he's going to end up with Oklahoma. If he waits at temple another year, I don't, I don't know if you make that jump. I always kind of thought he would go to another Northeast type, like a BC. Um, but obviously that didn't come open. Now what I thought he might've done was if James Franklin were to ever leave Penn state, I mean, he grew up in state college and was a player at Penn state. I think he would be a really good fit at Penn State. Well, maybe he saw how good they were this year and figured that job's not going to open anytime soon. Maybe so. I just, the only thing I worry about for him, I think he's a really good coach, really likable guy. I think he'll fit in well there, regardless of the no Texas ties. I cringed a little bit when I saw a quote from him from his press conference where he said he didn't really do much research about the scandal at Baylor. Uh, that's not good. <laughs> Because a lot of times these guys, they oh, what what could possibly be so wrong? I'll My be hunch on that is that he's pretty protected on that in the language of his deal and and knowing what he's getting into. I'd be surprised if he, you know, if he didn't know a lot more than he's leading on there. Well, you're saying like if there's major NCA sanctions, he would have an out. I don't know if it's per se that, but just some of those things. I'd be surprised if he didn't know. A lot more about now I'm not saying he knows what Pepper Hamilton knows, but I would be surprised if he if he entered this without knowing a lot more than what he's going to share at a press conference. It's supposed to be a very pro Baylor, you know, setting. I just hope he knows the kind of the, the polarizing environment he's walking into. There's still a whole lot of people that revere Art Bryles. He's not going to be running anything remotely close to what Art Bryles ran. And like you said, it's going to get bad, a bit worse before it gets better. You know, last year they lost uh, a good number of their best recruits left. You know, you got out of the letter of intent and left. They're at one commitment right now. Well, I'm sure he'll do what he can to salvage the recruiting class. But, I mean, basically, I would say it's like one and a half lost recruiting classes. So they're going to take a dip. There's there's no way around it. And, and I hope people there are understanding of it and they don't freak out after you know if they have a couple bad years and say well he was terrible hire yeah uh Stu, i would also think that you know as we said he's a penn state guy he grew up there i mean he's at temple it's not like he's on the other side of the world i think he probably has some, some you know awareness to that as well just because of uh you know his connections and having seen almost firsthand or at least secondhand you know some some similar scenarios with with how it is a temple uh, with how it is a Penn State right now. Gotcha. Fair point. Next question. Next question is from Sean Callen. People have made a big deal about Baylor having one commitment in the 2017 class. As Sam Sam Callen. I'm sorry. What did I just say? Sean. Sean. Sorry, Sean. Sorry, Sam. 
Um, <laughs> people have made a big deal about Baylor having one commitment for the 2017 class, as Stu just did. I am not surprised, and not because of the rape issues, but because no recruit had a clue about who the coach was going to be. I do not think Baylor is a place a lot of football players are going to go just because it's Baylor. Georgia held on to recruits because, one, it is UGA, and two, it named a coach fast, and three, that coach had some gravitas. Seriously, how effective can the current coaches really recruit? Uh, I think Sam's point that, to me, that is the most relevant or A, yes, nobody knew what the direction was going to be going forward. So what are you committing to? And B, you know, the coaches were basically lame duck assistant coaches. You know, some had already, I think, sold their houses. They knew they weren't going to be on passive. So exactly what are they recruiting? And, and you know, we saw plenty of, of instances where there was definitely friction between, you know, the old Bryles holders and some of, you know, and – and the higher ups at Baylor now, and how the how the place is run, so it created a pretty volatile dynamic. And I think those factors all in, and it's not surprising at all. I don't think you're surprised. I'm surprised they had one commitment, much less that they didn't have zero. That you know that kid, um, Baylor fans should love that kid, whether yeah. he plays a down or not. Well, I think we're going to find out how much have the assistants truly been trying to keep that class afloat, or did they kind of stop caring when they realized they weren't going to come back because. I remember talking to Luke Fickle when after Urban Meyer got hired and he had spent the year as the interim coach and, and obviously they sent similar situation. They didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, we, they didn't know if he was going to hold on to the job or somebody was going to come in from the outside. They didn't know if somebody came in from the outside. I mean, frankly, pretty rare what Urban Meyer did in keeping him. Um, and he said the whole goal was just keep guys in play, keep guys in play. We know they're probably not going to commit, but keep them in the mix Keep 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 them paid. Keep telling them, you know, it's gonna be resolved soon enough. And then once he did, Urban Meyer comes in and shocker, he's able to close a lot of those guys. So we're gonna see uh, whether that's the case here with Baylor. And suddenly they get a whole bunch of commits now that they know who the coach is, or if he's truly got to go out and kind of find um, kids that he can flip from other schools or guys who are just like have fallen through the cracks to this point. He's also got to hire a staff. I mean, Urban Meyer was going to hit the ground running to somebody. I mean, to me, the parallels were are, are not a lot because of, you know, the the environment and also Ohio State and Urban Meyer is a much more established brand. Right. It's not going to go. They're not going. Well, I mean, I think he ended up signing a top five class. That's not going to happen here. But you know, we'll see if he can salvage it. Joe from Greenville, South Carolina, Stuart and Bruce. Happy holidays. This looks to be a very strong year for the top bowl games. Really happy with the committee's matchups. Outside of the playoff and semis and New Year's Six games, what bowls are you most looking forward to this year? Specifically, give us one game pre-December 25th. So this is not Citrus Bowl and whatnot. It's those fun little games that get played on a Tuesday night and not too long from now. Do you have one that stands out to you? I'm going to have you go first so I can look at the bowl schedule. Well, the obvious one, and it's almost you know too obvious, is the Vegas Bowl. Because it's San Diego State against Houston it's Greg Ward, it's Ed Oliver, it's Donnell Pumphrey. Donnell Pumphrey has a chance to break Ron Dane's record. I mean, to me, that's one of the top 10 bowl games, you know, regardless of uh, what the date is. So let's look for one that's a little less obvious here. And I think I'm going to go with the Boca Raton Bowl, Memphis against Western Kentucky. No Jeff Braun, but obviously still the same offense and system. They score a lot of points. So can Memphis. I could see that being a... 
um, 52 to 45 kind of bowl game. Yeah, look, Riley Ferguson's been a hell of a story. I mean, I actually ran into Mike Norvell the other day, and we talked a lot about him. I think he said that there's a chance if uh, some of the teams they faced win their bowl games that they will have played six teams that won ten games or not, or ten ten games or more this year, which is wow. pretty impressive. I thought Ohio State was impressive with four. I'm going to give you a couple of bowls too. One is a personal one: um, the idea that UTSA is playing in their first bowl of you know ever, and it's basically a, a a true road game because it's in the Gilded New Mexico Bowl against Bob Davies' team. Yeah, those are two of your guys, uh, Bob Davy and Frank Wilson. Yes, so um, I think that's good. I, you know, I'm curious a little bit about the uh, the San Diego the Poinsettia Bowl because I've heard a lot of good things about Wyoming's quarterback, and he is. You know, I, I ran into an NFL scout I know a couple of weeks ago at a game, and he said he's got a lot of talent. He's really raw, um, but he's kind of intriguing. And so to get a chance to see him, I mean, I think that's one of the, one of the other great things about bowl games. You get a, a closer look at guys that maybe you haven't paid much attention to. So I would I would give that guy a nod. Um, that's about it because, I mean, it's the – not to say well, I won't watch like the, the Dollar General Bowl, but – a lot, you know, there aren't that many matchups that are before the 25th. And there are some, I'm not going to disparage any, but there are some that I flat out, if I happen to be able to watch it, great. If I'm not available, okay. Um, but there are some, there are some genuine ones in there that, that do stand out. What is the game here, but regardless of, of what you're doing on this particular day? I'm going to rattle off bowl matchups, and you tell me the one you can most afford to No, miss. I just said I don't want to disparage anybody. I, the, uh, congratulations to all these teams for making their bowl games, but there are some that I'm probably not going to make a strong effort to watch. No. Okay. Um, this one is one that, that should get interesting, okay, from Michael in Cincinnati. Dear Stu and Bruce, and I want to point out he sent this email before the Heisman finalists were announced. Love the show. Before the Michigan-Ohio State game, I kept hearing rumblings that if Jabril Peppers had a monster game, he would be a Heisman finalist, if not the favorite, due to Lamar Jackson's regression. After the game, I took a look at his season stats, which are fairly pedestrian, and was baffled by all the hype. Does Peppers affect the game in ways that stats don't capture, or is he being praised because of his NFL draft stock? Hearing smart people acknowledge a player's worth beyond his raw numbers is refreshing, but after his so-so performance in the Ohio State-Michigan game, I'm just confused. P.S. Arby's is terrible. Thank you very much. Yeah, but just for every one of those, we get two or three stop knocking Arby's. Stu, I hope you get like gift certificates sent for you because you have been championing that that establishment. So the interesting thing about this question is how we just talked on Monday about how it's tough to talk about the Heisman. You don't want to knock a guy, right, at the expense of somebody else. Then Jabril Peppers gets announced as a Heisman finalist, and I basically did exactly that. I, I to, had a couple snarky tweets about it. Your thoughts? Uh, I think it was a classless act that you... you... <laughs> Not about the tweet about Jabril Peppers. Um, yeah, you know, like I, I remember this from, from uh, like a week or two ago. Somebody had tweeted out like Jabril missing a tackle against against somebody. Like it was like a screen grab of it. And I feel like if you're a defensive player, the bar is ridiculously high. If somebody shows you getting pancaked or somebody shows you, you know, giving up a long touchdown or whatever, you know, you have no margin for error. You know, I mean, look, a lot of people have, have mentioned Adoree Jackson, who had a spectacular finish uh, to the season. 
you know, I remember some of the, you know, against Utah, they kept on going to Tim Patrick, who's an unfair matchup if you're, you know, basically Tim Patrick 6'6", or, you know, a towering receiver, and they were just kind of moving the chains with them. Um, you know, I don't know. I thought Jabril Peppers certainly deserves All-American candidate status. I think Jim Harbaugh definitely helped helped uh, push his Heisman candidacy by with the comments he made. Uh, you know, when you evoke the name Jim Thorpe, that's about as heavyweight as you're going to get. And, um, you know, I, I think that if he had had a great game and had a bunch of big plays and propelled them to victory, I, I think he would have I, – I didn't think he was going to get to New York without doing what he did. But, you know, Michigan is a big brand. There was nobody on that offense that was going to really resonate with voters. And, you know, I think there was a lot of name recognition that that helped propel him there. I do think he's a terrific player, but I think it's just so hard for a defensive guy. Even if a defensive guy plays some on offense, um, I just think it's really hard for them to, to get there. But I was surprised, and maybe that's a reflection of that there was no really, you know, we can talk about Lamar Jackson having, you know, run away with the Heisman early, but I think because the Heisman race seemed like it was so muddled this year, it gave some off-the-radar, non-traditional position guys a lot more opportunity to get traction, and I think that's what happened with Jabril Peppers. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I mean, all of that is true. I definitely think playing for a big brand-name school um you know, a very unique story. I guess why I was a little puzzled. I was puzzled that I mean, I would not have got two thirds of the way through the season. Yes. I mean, he was on my top five, but after he just kind of didn't have an impact in their biggest games down the stretch and they lost twice, I didn't think this was even in the picture anymore. I thought if a defensive player was going to get uh, to New York, it was going to be Jonathan Allen. And I guess that's why this is a little frustrating to me because he's a good player, but you and I could both sit here and name better defensive players in college football players who are more outstanding defensive players this year and so what this message sends is you have for a defensive player to make it you have to have some sort of you have to do more you have to return punts in his case or play receiver or you know it's not enough to just be an elite pass rusher or an elite cornerback or an elite you know run stopping linebacker you have to be you have to have something else and i that's disappointing to me well i also think that as much as that ties into, you know, just to a sensible point. Um, and I think he's a much better player than a player I'm about to mention. Uh, Peppers is much better than Manti Teo. Manti Teo came in second. Uh, and it was, a t- again, tied to a guy with, with, a lo- with this huge brand that had a big year. He also, you know, as a, even though it was a, turned out to be a, a big hoax, but he had a, an emotional story that resonated I do not buy for a second that people voted for him for the Heisman because of Lene Kakua. That that became a much bigger deal once the fake girlfriend story came out. I think, though, it was a reason for people to get to know him. Because it wasn't like Manti Teo had like 16 tackles for loss. If you look at his numbers, yeah, he had some interceptions. There was no reason. I mean, again, I don't want to... to uh, Maybe I'm doing this without trying to do it. But, you know, revisit the Manti Teo candidacy. Well, what I think happened that year was... I mean, Manti Teo wasn't even the best linebacker on the field when they played Alabama and C.J. Mosley. It wasn't even close. Yeah, I think what happened that year, and I had him on my ballot, I think what happened that year was Notre Dame was undefeated, the only undefeated team, and they didn't have an offensive guy to speak of. So he became the Heisman candidate for, for Notre Dame. Michigan, albeit, wasn't undefeated, but Michigan 
didn't have any like significant stand. I mean, Jake Butt's a good tight end, but tight ends aren't going to win it, you know? So I think that had a lot to do with it. But again, you know, it just wasn't anything that make you go, you know, wow here. To me, it's an example of, and I wrote this in the mailbag, why it's just, there shouldn't be 900 Heisman voters. Because I think if you took the 90 that follow it the closest, maybe Jonathan Allen's there right now. Uh, Maybe Derek Barnett's there. I don't think Peppers would be there, but there's a lot of people that vote on this award who barely cover college football, or they pop in and on occasionally. Um, you know, general columnists, uh, talking heads on TV shows that talk about all of the sports, not just college football. And they, they, he's a big name. They recognize his name. They know he's good. He gets on their Heisman ballot. So it'll be interesting to see Saturday night where exactly. I mean, it's very rare that a guy gets named a Heisman finalist that I'm surprised at. You know, like. If it had been Deontay Foreman, if it had been Dalvin Cook, if it had been any of the guy, any of those guys, okay. But I, this, you know, we talked on t- for ten minutes on Monday's podcast. I think we mentioned about ten different names, and he wasn't one of them. So it really, uh, really caught me by surprise. All right, uh, next question from Steve Drips. I think one of the bigger takeaways from this year's playoff field is that the threshold for a Group of Five champion making it into the top four is impossible. The only plausible scenario I could see would be for a team from the AAC or Mountain West scheduling four top 25 caliber opponents out of conference games and going undefeated overall. Like if Boise State played Virginia Tech, Georgia, Washington, and Ole Miss in the same season, or if Temple played Pitt, Penn State, Notre Dame, and Michigan. Are any group of five schools aggressively scheduling to build a playoff caliber resume or are most content to play in the New Year's Six for the New Year's Six Bowl spot? I have a question to tack on to that before you get to this. Uh, Stu, if Houston had run the table, because we know they beat, if they hadn't lost to Navy or to SMU or certainly to, to Memphis at the end of the year, but they had those wins, if Houston is undefeated, do you think they would have got the fourth spot instead of Washington? I think they would have, yeah. Uh, and and that's a so so to his point, yes. I think in general, you have to schedule very ambitiously at a conference, which they did in playing both Oklahoma and. Louisville. But you don't need to schedule. You know, I mean, what Steve says here, I think, is above and beyond. Well, they're not all the same. I mean, the the American itself produced a couple of top twenty five teams both last year and this year, right? Right, but so, I'm, I'm so. saying you don't need to have. I think if you have two heavyweight schools and maybe one other respectable name, I mean, you don't need to have, you know, what he mentions there with those four teams. Yeah. Ole Miss had a down year, but Virginia tech was a top 25 team. I mean, Georgia was seven and five, but they still have a lot of players. Obviously Washington is a top five team. What I'm saying is I don't think an AAC school has to schedule four of those. I, they're, they're going to have some top 25 wins in their own conference. I think for Western Michigan, which probably is the better example, right, because they are undefeated and they're nowhere close to the playoff, for Western Michigan to get in, they probably would, and it's impossible to do, schedule four of these kind of schools because they went undefeated and they beat two Big Ten schools in their 15th. So that tells you how much the committee respects the the, the you know the chunk of their schedule that's in conference. and. You can't do it. I mean, these first of all, none of these schools are going to come into your stadium, so you have to go agree to go play them all on the road, uh, which means you don't get the home games, which means you don't get the money. I mean, it's really, it's a really unrealistic uh, scenario. And frankly, these schools aren't 
I think they are, to his point, you know, they would be very content to play in a New Year's Six Bowl spot because it's like a, you know, the once-in-a-generation thing for, for Central Michigan to have this kind of season. Uh, you know, it's one thing if you're Boise State and you've kind of built yourself. That's the other point, by the way. In order to do this, you can't come out of nowhere. You know, you have to uh, – Houston was in the mix this year because of what it did last year. Boise State took several of those undefeated season-type things before they got any traction in the BCS championship race. Um, that's not fair, but that's real. That's just the reality of it. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I agree. And that's why I mentioned the Houston part of it. So it's, it's doable, but it's, you don't have much margin for error. Okay. The last question is from Andy. Hi, Bruce and Stu. I wanted to take a second to say thanks for all of the podcasts for the last few seasons and offer a little feedback. By the way, Stu, I haven't read this yet, this part of it. So hopefully he doesn't say anything really bad about me. Uh, I've been no, listening. it's all about me. <laughs> I've been listening since day one, and for someone in a job that requires a lot of time in cars and planes, having this to listen to is a great thing. I don't have a question, but in the way of feedback, I wanted to note that it seems like there has been a lot of disgust coming from Stu in regards to Michigan this season. I 100% recognize that every fan base thinks every journalist is biased against them, and as a Michigan alum and fan. I know that I'm not objective here, but I feel like there has been an increased level of snark and disgust directed at Michigan and Jim Harbaugh this season, and this is a bit of a turnoff. Some examples would be tweets during the Iowa-Michigan game, today's comment about, about I keep calling Julius, Jabril Pepper's four-yard Wildcats, four-yard Wildcat snaps, and pretty much every conversation about Jim Harbaugh. Okay, Stu, defend yourself. Yeah, no, I wanted you to bring this up because sometimes you need somebody from the outside to to recognize something, and I think he's actually right. Uh, I think that I've been a little too hard on Michigan this year. Um, I don't think I've been unfair to Harbaugh. I think the only negative, truly negative thing I wrote about him was when he was before signing day when he was um, running guys off who they'd offered scholarships to, and and not so much about him, but. Um, pointing out that this is the exact kind of stuff that Michigan fans used to criticize the SEC for. Now he was doing it there. You know, I, I get a little sick of Harbaugh mania sometimes, and maybe that comes out. Although I got to give him credit, he had an epic press conference, Orange Bowl press conference Wednesday. That uh, it's him and Jimbo Fisher both up there, and he's talking about how much he's looking forward to seeing, um, you know, the plant the spear at the game. And he asked Jimbo Fisher flat out, you know, are you guys going to do that at the bowl game? And you can tell Jimbo has no idea whether they do that or not at the bowl game. It's a little awkward. Anyway, giving him a little love there. I don't remember what he's talking about with the Iowa-Michigan game, but I do know that I was pointing out for weeks the fact that Michigan hadn't played a, a good road game, and I was getting a lot of backlash from Michigan fans about that, that I wasn't giving them enough credit. So when they did lose on the road to Iowa, I felt a little bit of indication that, you know what, it is really tough to play on the road, and, uh, and that Ohio State losing at Penn State didn't mean that they were terrible. Um, Jabril Peppers, four-yard Wildcat snaps. I probably shouldn't have said that. I was just so floored by the fact that he was a Heisman finalist. How much of this, when he, when I was reading his scalding criticism of you, it got me thinking, you know, this Twitter echo chamber, sometimes I think we all get caught on, like almost like a piling on kind of thing where you get sucked into the momentum. And this just sounds like an excuse, which I guess it really is. Um, and you start tweeting things that you probably wouldn't write and probably you wouldn't say on the radio. Um, Lord knows I might say them on a podcast, but 
I do feel like we all kind of do that. I once had an old, old, old SID who still works in the business said, you know, don't think we don't have like accounts that we don't, that you don't know about that. We don't want, listen to you guys. And we're like, you know, like, what the hell are you saying that? You know, kind of stuff. I would think it's very hard to be an SID now and see writers sarcastic because basically what it is, what you're seeing on there is kind of what I would call press box banter. You're seeing a lot of things. I remember when Twitter first became a thing way back in uh, 2009. The first time I covered a game since it had become a thing. I don't remember what school I was at, but there were two student journalists behind me. And I remember thinking like, God, if I say something, if I make like a sarcastic remark and, and that they don't approve of, they might tweet it out, you know, and like stuff that you're not used to the public hearing. So I don't think I'm too bad about that. I do think, like I said, the Jabril Peppers one probably crossed the line. But like I would write or say on the podcast that Michigan fans are not taking seriously enough the fact they haven't played a road game, a true road game uh, to that point in the season or – you know, you talk about the Twitter echo chamber. I couldn't believe how many Michigan fans still thought they should be in the playoff after the season. I don't know where that was coming from. Yeah, and I think some of that can be wishful thinking. No, no, there are Michigan fans who think they should be there. They're a better team than Washington. They they wouldn't be a 14-point underdog against Alabama. They should be in the playoff. That is a serious line of thinking. Okay. Look, that's what we love about fans and we love about the passion they have for the sport and that... Uh... And that kind of some of that feeds the audible too. So I don't think that's a bad thing. Exactly. We wouldn't be we wouldn't be where we are today. We wouldn't have this podcast without the passion of the fans. Are you more likely to tweet something you probably like, eh, I shouldn't have tweeted that on a Saturday or during the week? That's a great question. Um I'd say during the week. I know why you're suggesting there might be Saturday, the quick, you know, overreaction. But no, probably during the week. Yeah. And by the way, to this very point. The thing we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast about the Notre Dame letter. So my tweet was, tweets like this have been popping up ever since, but they literally popped in just now. Nothing helps a program die quite like alumni passively accepting the administration's refusal to address all of its shortcomings. Towards that end, I feel like the, the older I get, the more I find myself deleting and backspacing over things I'm about to say or write and just go, eh, this isn't probably worth it. Oh, I definitely do. Do you know that when I was a young, um, fearless and possibly reckless columnist, I actually wrote a column. I was really proud of it at the time. I'm not so sure I am now. Alabama, the whole Mike Price thing happened, right? And they fired Mike Price, which at the time I thought was not was an overreaction. But anyway, I think I wrote a column, the gist of which was, this all showed what a backward place Alabama is. The word backwards was definitely in there. No, that was a 26-year-old who, frankly, hadn't even spent much time in Alabama at that point as much as I have now. Now I love Alabama. In college, I think I once found a paper I had done about why drugs should be legalized and it was all centered around me being a kid going to a Nets game where Michael Ray Richardson lit up the Lakers and like a Two days later, I think, went into, like, drug rehab for some major drug issues, you know. And that was my thesis. Not thesis. That was my, like, I'm, I don't remember what the hell class was for, but I do remember having Wait, that opinion. That was, like, your, your that's, that was your major, that's how you graduated from college, was writing that paper? I didn't say that. I did it, like, it was probably, a, a you know, an essay I turned in. It's not like I got a graduate degree and spent six months working on this or whatever. No, it's not that. 
Did you have the equivalent of that? Somewhere there is a degree that I, that has my name on it. No, no, no. no but did no, you have no. to did write a big, big um, um, like, like thesis type thesis paper? Type paper. No, I remember I did something when I was at Miami on the on the uh, on the subculture of boxing and like how shady the sport was, but I don't remember. I don't remember ever really doing some massive like deep dive where I spent three months working on something. Did you? No, I mean it's a journalism undergrad degree. You don't have to do that. Fun times. Well, let's do this again next week. Send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail dot com, and like I said earlier. Maybe a paragraph. Paragraph would suffice. That would be a lot easier to read on on air. What has a better chance of happening? Of A, Lamar Jackson winning the Heisman, B, Alabama winning the national title, or C, Jason Gorlewski getting in the mailbag next week? I think I would rank those as Lamar Jackson winning the Heisman, Jason Gorlewski, Alabama. And they're all very high likelihoods. Okay. As always, if you enjoy the Audible... Please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you've already done that, why don't you leave us a review, a five-star review preferably. We are at five stars on iTunes right now. Let's keep it up. It helps get the word out. We'll see you next time. 